Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Hey listeners, this is your host, David from Humane. Do you deal with digestion issues? Have trouble losing weight? Feeling low in energy? Or have trouble focusing? It could have something to do with your gut. According to the latest research, your gut microbiome health is crucial to your overall health. Check out Thrive, a gut microbiome testing company. Thrive makes the process easy. They send you a test kit to your home, you mail back a test sample in a prepaid box, and in two to three weeks, receive a comprehensive gut health report with dietary recommendations and the option to receive personalized probiotics. Check them out at thriveinside.com. That's T-H-R-Y-V-E inside.com. And use the coupon code AI for an exclusive offer of 15% off your first purchase. Again, that's thriveinside.com. Check out Thrive today at T-H-R-Y-V-E inside.com with coupon code AI for 15% off your first purchase. You are listening to The Humane Podcast. Humane is your first look at the startups and industry titans that are leading and disrupting artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education. I am your host, David Jakobovich, and you are listening to Humane. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Now, on to the show. Welcome, everyone, back to the Humane Podcast. Today, I have a very special guest. Many of you know that as I've been growing in the data science and AI field, I have a special place 
with video games and my love as being a geek. A fun fact that many people may not know about me is that back in high school, I would nerd out to MMORPGs like RuneScape and a lot of these these other um, cool games. And so our guest today is the founder and CEO of AI Dungeon, the AI Dungeon franchise, Nick Walton. For those of you in the industry, you've probably by now heard of AI Dungeon and how it's taken an industry by storm as I think one of the paramount examples of the success in the GPT-2 movement. So Nick, thanks so much for joining us on Humane. Yeah, happy to be here. Yeah, I'm really excited again, not just as a nerd and a geek and a video game enthusiast, but seeing where the industry's going. You know, about six months ago on Humane, I had the former CEO of Epic Games. Uh, we got to speak about the Unreal Engine, the Unity Engine, the evolution of games, both from GDC and these conferences. But now I think fast forward into 2020, so much is changing. I think the gaming industry is now a hybrid of makers, of creators who can code, and artists. And we're seeing all this merge together. And what I'd love to hear for our listeners is tell us about AI Dungeon and your inspiration from where this came about into the movement that it is today. Yeah, yeah. So I think a good place to start is um, at the beginning of last year, I started playing Dungeons and Dragons with my family, just a small group. And I hadn't actually done that before. And what was really interesting to me with AI Dungeon compared to other video games is just that freedom because you had a dungeon master that could say like whatever action you try to do, he could think through what would be the consequence, how that would affect the story. And so even though the dungeon master would think of kind of a world and possible quest things you might do, he could adapt to any action you did. And that was something that just doesn't exist in any video game. So then in March of last year, I was at a hackathon and GPT-2 had just come out, and so I was playing around with it. And they had only released the smallest model, so it wasn't as good as like their, their largest model. But it was pretty fun, and I was able to make like a decent little uh, like AI Dungeon Master with it. And uh, I didn't win anything at that hackathon, but I thought it was cool enough that over the next couple months, I continued to work on it and worked on how to deploy it. And I made a little web app, which I called AI Dungeon 1 or now AI Dungeon Classic. And it got played by probably something like 10,000 people. So it's like a decent number, but the model is much smaller. So it was less coherent. And also in order to save on compute, I just had it generate a couple like pre-generated actions you could choose from. So it wasn't freeform like um, AI Dungeon 2. So then fast forward into fall, I was working on it a ton, neglecting my classes to a degree. <laughs> and GPT-2 released the largest model. And I also found a data set of text adventures. So I trained the largest model on text adventures. And that's where it got like much, much better. And so released AI Dungeon 2 in December. And it was initially just released as a... It's Python code in a Google Colab notebook, which is just a way to run um, AI machine learning models. And, and Google provides a free GPU for that. And yeah, it exploded much more than we thought, which was kind of crazy because although, although we didn't have to pay for GPU compute, which was our biggest concern, some quirks with the Google Colab 
and downloading our model made that really expensive. And so within a few days, we'd racked up like 30, 40,000 in bandwidth costs. <laughs> and so that was, uh, that was kind of scary. And so we shut that down, but then pretty fast community members had implemented a peer-to-peer torrent sharing network so they could still play the game like within 12 hours. So I think that kind of was one of the first demonstrations to us that we're onto something cool. And so from there, we've gone and we've made like a mobile and web app version that you can play. And now we're, we just passed 750,000 registered users. And so it's been growing pretty fast. I think it's so fascinating what you just shared, Nick, and not just about the cool factor and the growth, but that it started similar to one of the big movies last year on Netflix, Bandercamp or Bandersnatch, which is all about choose your own adventure with these two scenarios. And now it's dozens and hundreds and it's maybe infinite number of scenarios, which I think is really inspiring that you were able to take a product from an MVP or a very simple product and then start to see how you would scale it up over time. I wanted to dive back to that MVP stage because a lot of engineers and data scientists and founders always get stuck on how do we even get to MVP? How do we test and iterate a product? And uh, you mentioned you got to participate in a hackathon and that's where this uh, inspiration got tested and, and you saw some results. I myself have participated in hackathons, usually in a group setting, but prior to recording today's episode, we talked about that you are a solo competitor at this hackathon. You didn't have a group. So what was going through your mind when you were at this hackathon and and why did you go about it solo? Yeah, I mean, I haven't ever ever really gone to hackathons to win. I honestly don't really care. (laughs) The thing I love about hackathons is... It's this place where you can do like build things completely in explorative way. Like you're not, you don't have any pressure or time crunch. It's like, okay, let's just explore possible things we can build. But the nice thing is if it doesn't work out, you can just say like, oh, I tried that for a day. It didn't work out and I don't have to keep going with it. And you don't really feel bad about not continuing this project. And so I think it's a great place to be able to explore different ideas, but keep a like bounds on how much time they take and just get to the point to see whether there's something there or not. So yeah, I went there and I think I'd like, there were, there were people I was there with who were like working on their own fun things, but I think partly because I didn't care about winning, I was just like playing around with different things to see what would be fun. And so that's kind of why I did it that way. It's part of having fun. And, you know, myself, I used to be involved as a North America regional manager for Angel Hack. So we used to run hackathons in Detroit, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City. And so many ideas would always come out of the hackathons. I want to know that as someone myself who's both mentored, judged, moderated, I love seeing the feedback that participants get out of a hackathon and how that evolves into pivoting or getting validation. So what was some of that feedback or validation you received from the hackathon that, you know, convinced you or led you down the path to continue with AI Dungeon? Yeah, I think just the, so like the people I was working around with, I would like share the stories and the adventures and people were just busting out laughing. So I think that was a good sign of like how fun this could be. And then I think one of the issues with um, like in terms of the competition is I didn't have like a, a web playable version by the end of the hackathon because that took quite a bit more work, especially on the machine learning side. 
And so I think that was one of the hard things is like I was showing it off, but it's just this text thing and it's hard for people to like get what's going on versus if I had been able to like share a link that people could play, I think people would have been like gotten a much better idea of kind of what it is. But yeah, I think that seeing how much fun people had playing it just around me um, sparked the inclination to be like, okay, I should take this to the next step, make a web app. And I spent like a hundred hours over the next like several weeks doing that. And so, and then it kind of went from there. You know, I see this recurring theme about cool and fun. And, and even as Marie Kondo, one of these well-known Feng Shui masters on, on Netflix now says, does it spark joy, right? If it sparks something that you're having a great time, the great effects are going to happen. It's going to compound. It's going to scale and build. And as you've described, Nick, it did scale. And when you deployed the model at scale, you, you started small, you used Google Collab. And um, like any developer who thinks Google Collab is for free, it is to a certain capacity. But then, <laughs> then there's always those, aha, we got you uh, scenarios. And so you mentioned you you experienced over thirty to $40,000 of bandwidth costs. What happened there? Did any sponsors come in to absorb this? Did Google say, well, partner? How did you uh, manage those costs? So the the professor whose lab I was working with, as soon as it was clear it was going to be over like a thousand, he's like, oh yeah, I'd be happy to, like, we can cover it out of the lab budget. That was when he thought it would be like a few thousand. Every time it hit a new milestone, I was like, hey, uh, professor, it's at 1500. Are you still sure you want to do this? Or, and then we got to like 6,000. I'm like, are you sure you still want to do this? He's like, yeah, it's still fine. 15,000. He's like, um, yeah, maybe let's look into ways we can reduce that. 20,000 is like, okay, shut it off, shut it off. <laughs> so yeah, so we ended up with quite a bit there. Um, thankfully, we were able to ask the the Google Cloud billing people just to forgive some of that because it was this just university project that went viral and they forgave a lot of it. And then we're planning on paying back the rest to the professor from like the startup. But yeah, it was it was kind of crazy. And part of it was a few quirks of of Google Colab. Like we didn't realize that Google Colab servers, a lot of them were in like Asia and Europe. Mm. And our model was hosted in the US. So we were getting like international egress bandwidth fees. And so that made it a lot harder than it otherwise would have been. And it was kind of ironic that like we did Google Colab because we were afraid of of spending all the money on GPU compute. But now, actually, our GPU compute infrastructure is much cheaper than the cost of all downloading all those models for the initial Google Colab version. It's, it's incredible to see how, you know, once it's set up, right, once these models are set up, then, then the cost rapidly reduces because as a practicing data scientist myself, it's, it's all about the model, right? How much time and compute goes in there. But once you got that steady state and you're just feeding in a few new data points, it's not that much compute, which is great. And it's um, really great to hear that most that's been resolved, you know, with the cost. Thank you, Google, for, you know, being generous <laughs> with the compute uh, recovery there. And so now as you're continuing the scale, you have, you know, multiple products, you know, both online where people could download and now even on Android and other operating systems. What is that looking like now? Because you are a startup founder, uh, you know, scaling AI Dungeon 2. Um, what are some of the goals and, and what is the product looking like? Yeah, so, and I want to make clear that since we, after releasing the Colab version, a team kind of started to come together and uh, a guy volunteered to build up the mobile apps 
I started working with my brother and he's been really awesome. He's got a lot of tech and startup experience. And so now we have like kind of a team together that does the mobile and the web and, and the model serving infrastructure on the back end. And we're looking at growing that team. But I think what we really want to do is explore all the awesome directions this can go. Because the awesome thing about AI Dungeon that I think players have been hungry for, and that's one of the things we're hitting on, is that player freedom. And like, so like Bandersnatch is a good example where like you have choices, which is completely new for like a TV show or movie, but at the same time, they're so limited. So I haven't personally watched it, but my brother did it. And, and his main issue was like, sometimes all the choices just suck. It was like, kill this person or kill this person. And it's like, I don't want to do any of those. <laughs> um, and so with AI Dungeon, you literally have an infinite set of possibilities because anything you can express in text, you can do. And that's, that's a completely new idea for a game. And I think there's so many interesting things you can do with that. But there are also technical challenges. And I think we have a really strong team to solve those, but we need to, to explore and figure out how to resolve those technical challenges and how to make... For example, right now, AI Dungeon is just story. So if you think in terms of D&D, D&D has kind of two halves. There's like a story half and there's a mechanics half. So mechanics, you have levels, you have health, you have damage and dice and everything. And then you have the story that the, the dungeon master is feeding off the player's inputs. So I think being able to merge those two in a video game format would be really powerful. And that's, that's one of the main things we're working on. Excellent. I can only imagine, uh, just speaking from my experience with video games, I mean, there's so many possibilities. I mean, whether you partner with big franchises or developers with anything from could be like a Kingdom Hearts to an EA Games to what sports players say to you know the gamut could just run wild. I can see so much possibilities. Are you thinking that this dungeon theme for games is the ideal vertical or scenario to start focusing on? I guess what do you mean by the dungeon themed? Like the kind of the more D&D-esque thing or... That's right, because, you know, uh, as someone who's attended, you know, the Game Developer Conference, there's so many emerging fields of video games. I mean, everything from, you know, live streaming and Battle Royale to MMORPGs. And so I'm just, my wheels are, are running right now thinking I could see so much implementation here. Even if I play a game and normally I choose pre-populated text to respond to my team, what if they're always evolving with, with technology like this? It just seems really cool to me. Yeah. Yeah. And, and actually, that's something that we definitely in the long term, we're thinking much broader than just like fantasy RPG type genre. And, and already you can do really anything, which is one of the cool things about AI Dungeon. It has this vast knowledge from the vanilla GPT-2, which was trained off 40 gigabytes of text data. So we've already seen like sports news sites saying, I played this sports adventure on AI Dungeon. And like, these are the cool things that happened. Or you can do you can do all kinds of like fan fiction types adventures, or you can do, I don't know, just normal, you know, you're a normal person. So I think it's really powerful in its ability to transfer themes. So it's not just like Skyrim type theme. It could also be The Sims. It could also be like FIFA. And so I think I think we're definitely interested in exploring that kind of broad set. I think for the initial game, I think the fantasy theme has been really powerful because it kind of taps into that getting closer to that D&D feel that people are hungry for. But we definitely have like larger kind of 
long-term vision. Sure. And that makes a ton of sense. I mean, even as you just mentioned with all these industries, whether it could be like a Skyrim or Sims or FIFA, I mean, we're seeing the GPT-2 technology emerging across the whole industry. I mean, news publications like the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times have started dabbling with creating content or auto-generating content. Traditionally, we've seen it with, you know, oh, there's the stock market and at the end of the day, a stock closes. And do we really need a human to to draft the whole article on it or can that be automated? But now it's also the text generation. So how interesting would it be if two people play a sports match and then a very creative story is generated from that? So I think there's a lot that's going to happen there in content and that media content could be with games or it could be anywhere in the industry. Just in the past month, I attended an art gallery in New York City, and they had this exhibit, and the exhibit was themed, The View from Nowhere. And I thought it was so interesting because the entire exhibit was based on AI, and most of it was, you know, automation and so forth. But they had an exhibit on GPT-2. This artist, Juan Cortez, had basically a computer robot arm, a Fanuc robot arm, and the Fanuc robot arm was connected to a pencil with a quill. And it basically was going down and up and drawing these hieroglyphic characters based on training on, as you mentioned, the 40 gigabyte GPT-2 data set. So it's incredible to see the expansion across verticals. And speaking across verticals, you know, you're now at the forefront of this industry, especially in gaming and, and where entertainment's going. I wanted to hear your thoughts on what are some trends you're, you're going to see that you'd like to see in the gaming industry. Well, so there's two things that this... AI-generated content makes really powerful. One is this player freedom where you could potentially, rather than having this preset list of possible options, you can make it much more expansive. I think the other thing is much more dynamic and interesting content. Because you think to games like Oblivion Skyrim, they're really cool and they've, they've got quite interesting worlds, but there are parts of it that break down in its uniqueness. For example, like you talk to one guard... And then you talk to another guard in a different city and he says the same kind of things. And so like that kind of starts to break down this this huge expansive world because then it starts to feel that, oh, some of these are actually the same. And Skyrim does a pretty good job of making, you know, doing enough handwritten stuff to make the world not feel that way. But that takes a lot of manpower to do that. And so I think with AI generated content, you can have less developers and less kind of like creators and maybe the creators are creating more of the long term and kind of the overarching themes and then the AI is filling in all these details and helping create this super expansive world and so I think that's a big thing you'll see I think also just the power to create unique content depending on the player like individualized So the player can do kind of the things that are much more interesting to them than just following the same kind of storyline that everyone else has. And I think you could see potential frameworks where you're learning based on what the player does, like what kind of things they like in a game. You know, what this makes me think of is personalized gaming hasn't been around for a long time. Of course, we've seen some of the games out there like Minecraft, especially around education, where you can build these worlds and they're very custom. 
But even beyond that, uh, I know in the last year, Fortnite came out with their creator content pack and asset pack so you could build these custom worlds to do Battle Royale. But even then, it's still very simplistic. We think it's custom, but you have 20 or 100 sprite assets, these, these 3D objects, and you build your world. But it excites me to think whether this could be unlimited, infinite, and it's always evolving for every game. I can only imagine like in the future, Fortnite doesn't just let you create your own assets to sell these, you know, different objects, but they're invented by the AI and the ones that are good, you know, become popular and stick around for the game. I think that's pretty cool. And perhaps we can see this both with text assets and digital assets as well. So doing a lot of this work, doing a little segue, it's all around, I think, in the AI space, NLP, natural language processing, natural language generation, natural language understanding, this whole natural language field is where the work is happening. And you're seeing all this scaling going. As you mentioned, Nick, over 750,000 players at this moment are having fun with AI Dungeon 2. What is your thoughts around other languages and if you've been exploring going into languages beyond English? Yeah, I think there's, there's a good amount of research into how to do that. I think in the near term, probably the closest thing we would do is just kind of route things through Google Translate or, or some similar service. Because to, to make a model that is natively in some language is a lot of work and we're not quite there yet. But yeah, I, we've already gotten a lot of requests from people who are like, oh, I want to play this in Spanish or I want to play this in Russian. And, and we just don't have the ability to do that yet. But I think there's a lot of potential in that area. And I think in terms of AI-generated content for games, I think NLP is going to be one of the first ones just because... So there are a couple of things that are powerful about NLP. One is you have a lower dimension space versus like images. And so it's a little bit easier. I think also the data you... Like we have so much text data on the internet and you can use that to do really interesting things. And the powerful thing about GPT-2 is... So the way it works is it says it's basically an advanced text predictor. Given the last text, what's the most likely next word? And then it just keeps generating words. So the cool thing about that is in order to predict the next word really well, you have to essentially build some kind of model about the world. For example, if you stab someone, they might bleed. Or if you bake a cake for someone, they might be happy. And so GPT-2 has really learned this model about the world. And sometimes it's not right, right? Like sometimes it does crazy things and you're like, what? But it's surprisingly good. And so I think that's really powerful is you, you have this framework that can learn from unlabeled text data and create all of this, create this model and use it. And so I think that's, I think that's probably the most powerful thing about GPT-2. Yeah, I mean, the scenarios you just gave, you know, stabbing and bleeding and baking a cake. I remember those in, even in RuneScape. So it's, you know, all these games <laughs> come full circle with these scenarios. And I, I think going back to games that I've played, in my experience, the more personalized it is, just the more I'm attached, the more I love it. I feel it's individualized. So, so I think that's very exciting. And I can't wait to see what's on the horizon as well for what you're doing with AI Dungeon 2 and the whole franchise. Yeah, and I just want to add along with that, I think one of the cool things about this as well is you can make surprisingly lifelike and dynamic NPCs. For example, one of the cool things I've seen people do in AI Dungeon is 
you can go and talk to NPCs and tell them that they exist in a video game and they're not real. And they'll like get depressed and sad and be like, what? And like freak out or, uh, or like in one of my games, I like searched for this magic tome and I learned this new life magic and I brought a tree to life. And he was like, hello, I'm tree man. And I'm like, are you happy to be alive? And he was like, yes, I'm so happy to be alive. Thank you for bringing me to life. And like, I just became best friends and I had this like emotional attachment to him. And I think that's like something really cool that's much more possible than in Skyrim when you have like the, I mean, with the main NPCs, you can kind of create, craft a little bit more of that. But I think you can do this with every NPC. And I think that creates a lot of really interesting kind of individual emotional connection. Yeah, and I mean, as someone who comes from the educational arena, I even wonder what expansion this could have for education, you know, like improv comedy, acting, or, you know, speaking and gaining confidence. It sounds like there's so many scenarios that can be generated. You know, now, of course, we have the GPT-2. I wonder how long it will be till GPT-3 or even, you know, (laughs) other updates come around. Do you have any predictions on where that technology is going and particularly around I think some of the things you've hinted throughout our conversation is the emergence of transfer learning. So what's your thoughts on that technology? Yeah, I mean, we're already seeing really fast development in terms of um, general purpose language models. So we have things like Albert that is uh, much more efficient and better than previous versions. There's other potential things like Google has one called T5 that's supposedly 7x as efficient as GPT-2. There's other ones that have a much larger context that they can take into account. And so I I think over the next year or two, we're going to see really rapid development of these kind of models. And I think that's really going to enable us to do a lot more even than we have already done with AI Dungeon. You know, one thing I wanted to dive into beyond what you've done with AI Dungeon is this is not your first rodeo. You've been going about research and technology for quite a few years. And uh, I had a chance to read that you've been working on CubeSats uh, at Brigham Young University, BYU, and uh, got to actually work on building these mini satellites up into space. I actually, uh, a few months ago, talked about I think that the future of technology is not just where we can be on our terminal, like a computer, a phone, but also um, having the access of data, especially on the edge and in space, to enable these transactions and to enable games like this. I mean, I wanted to hear your input from the work you've done with CubeSats till today. I mean, AI Dungeon 2 has compute, right? And I mean, if I'm not on an internet connection, how powerful is that game? Do you think there's, um, I'm asking a lot of questions here, but but what do you think about the emergence of CubeSats and 5G and the Edge as it comes to playing these dynamic games like you're building? Yeah, so I, I did a little bit with CubeSats. I didn't do a ton. So one of my brothers, so I have I have two older brothers. The oldest one is the one working with me on End Dungeon. The second one is he's completely in that space mm. um, industry. And so... He's the one that, um, so I, I helped him with this process a little, but he was the main driver where he got a grant from NASA to build a CubeSat at our university and assembled this team. And so has done a lot on that front. And so he's much more experienced on that. I, I, I helped for a little bit and then eventually I transitioned to like more of the robotics and machine learning side of things. But yeah, I think in terms of like doing things 
So one of the issues with AI Dungeon is it actually has the highest minimum required GPU spec of any game we know of. <laughs> it, it, so your GPU has to have 11 gigabytes of GPU RAM. So that puts it out of the, out of the range of all but the most high-end gaming GPUs. And so that's why from the outset, we've gone, rather than playing it locally, we host the GPUs on servers and then have people play it there. And I think in the future, that'll continue to be the case because there's just so much more you can do on server-side, deep-learning, customized GPUs than you can locally. And also right now, just the, the tooling to package machine learning models into games is just not that great right now. And so there's a huge barrier on that front as well. Speaking of the tooling for machine learning models into games, do you think any of the platforms are going to accelerate that, whether that's Unity, whether that's Unreal, or even another platform? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Um, I think it makes sense for them to, to incorporate that more, and I think that's something that will enable really interesting things with games. And so I would hope they do that, but I'm not sure what's on their roadmap. Sure. And um, looking forward, we've had now this dynamic conversation on AI Dungeon and AI Dungeon Classic and AI Dungeon 2 and and where the product um, has evolved from your story into now this startup that is accelerating with growth. Forward thinking, looking at the next three, six months, what are some new ideas that you think you're going to be working on or where you'd like to take the product forward? Yeah, so we have several things that we have good prototypes for and that we're working on implementing. So things like multiplayer, where it's kind of a turn-based. So we've got a lot of interesting ways you can modify the game. I think then some of the next steps, text-to-speech could be really interesting. Um, so we have samples where it's like a pretty good like British storyteller-like voice that really adds to that. I think you could do interesting things like um, adaptive music. So like... Imagine you have a very simple sentiment classifier that tries to detect what the mood of your the current place in the adventure is. So it's like, oh, mysterious things are happening. So like play some mysterious music or like triumphant because you defeated the dragon. Um, so I think that's a really fun direction. But I think long term, the biggest thing that we're working on is um, how can we incorporate state into the game? How can you have locations or inventories or quests that merges in a way that works well and adds this kind of discreteness? Because I think you really need the discreteness to feel a strong sense of progression. Because without any of that, you don't feel the same level of progression as you do when you have levels and like discrete things you can track and watch improving. And that makes sense, right? We could think of all this exciting technology like synthetic voices and adaptive music, and it's all the glamour that we want to move to in technology. But you're right, you got to get the fundamentals going. And now that you have this traction, it sounds pretty cool that your team's focusing on state. And of course, when we think of AI and data science, state is talked about a lot. But when it comes to video games, I don't know if most developers think of state, they just think of levels. So uh, that's an update that I'm looking forward to. And uh, especially everyone in the gaming industry and everyone listening to the Humane podcast. Nick, we appreciate your time here and thanks for joining us on Humane. Yeah, happy to be here. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Humane Podcast. What do you think? Did the show measure up to your thoughts on artificial intelligence, data science, future of work, and developer education? Listeners, I want to hear from you so that I can offer you the most relevant, trend-setting, and educational content on the market. You can reach me directly by email at david at humanepodcast.com. Remember to share this episode with a friend, subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcasting app, and tune in to more episodes of Humane. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.